Let us pray. Speak, Lord God, to our hearts, for we, your servants, are listening. Speak, Lord God, to our hearts, for we, your servants, are listening. We pray this in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus. Amen. If you would take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Ruth, Ruth chapter 4 this morning, Ruth 4 this morning. I know that uh, you know that this Sunday is the Sunday before Thanksgiving, and I imagine that many of you have Thanksgiving plans. Those Thanksgiving plans might look different than they have in the past years, and there might be a a variety of emotions that you feel about the difference between uh, what you've experienced in the past and what you are wondering you're going to experience this week here. I know that a lot of individuals, a lot of families, even those that are watching this morning, uh, worshiping with us this morning from home, uh, we, we can respond to the uniqueness of our, of our day w- with a variety of responses. For some of us, it just provides a, a tremendous platform for our anxiety in our lives. We, we're just reminded of what's just out of our control. And, and our intuition is to say, hey, look, I, I want to be in control. I want to I be able to control everything uh, around me. And, then, and, and that can produce uh, frustration. Uh, we could be going into this Thanksgiving season with disappointment. That might be what some of you are feeling here. You might feel as if uh, there, there's just this sense of, of not hopelessness, but just depression that maybe you're feeling or just disappointment that you're feeling here. And, and those could be natural reactions as we move into the Thanksgiving season here. I'm always reminded of, of the platform of gratitude for your life and my life. Paul writing to the church at Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18, where he, he, he says so memorably, give thanks in all circumstances. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. He doesn't say give thanks for all circumstances, but give thanks in all circumstances. And so what I want us to think about this morning as we move into the season of Thanksgiving is that the best is yet to come. I want us to be reminded as we we move into this unique day in which we're living, where we're going to celebrate Thanksgiving, that we celebrate it as followers of Jesus with this truth at our heart, that the best is yet to come. The best is not behind us, but the best is yet to come. But don't just take my word for it, but be reminded of God's word on this theme here. Ruth chapter 4 and verses 1 through 6 this morning. Before we do that, I have to sort of remind you of where we've been. I don't know if everybody has heard all of our messages that are gathered here this morning on the book of Ruth. We're in our final message, Ruth chapter 4 in the book of Ruth. And I think it's helpful for us to have a a recap of sorts. Every Friday night, we're we're past football season in the Eldridge household. So that meant that the last two to three Friday evenings, we're, we're building some new traditions, which that is meant for the Eldridge family. We're watching The Mandalorian on Friday nights here. So we've moved from the football field to Disney+. And so, uh, surprise, surprise, Danielle has not seen season one of The Mandalorian, but no problem with that because the first three, four episodes that we've watched as a family, at the very outset of it, there is a previously 
own season one of The Mandalorian. You know, there's a recap. Now, my sons, they want to fast forward through the recap. They want to skip the recap. And guess what? You can skip the recap, but you can't skip the recap because you don't know what's going on. So I'm always having to say, she's not going to understand what's going on. She's got to see the recap here. And so to make sure we're all on the same page previously in the book of Ruth, you need to know the recap. Okay, so we have a matriarch, we have a patriarch. The matriarch of the story is not Ruth, but Naomi. She's married to Elimelech. They live in a place called Bethlehem. You know, Bethlehem actually means the house of bread. But would you know it, that there was a famine in the house of bread. So Naomi and Elimelech, with their two sons, they go to sojourn in Moab. Moab was the arch rival of the Israelites. There in Moab, their two sons marry. They marry Moabite women, Orpha and Ruth. While in Moab, Naomi, the matriarch of the family, buries her husband, Elimelech. He dies. And then, would you believe, grief upon grief, she buries her two sons. So there is Naomi, the matriarch of this family, living in a foreign land and has buried her husband, buried her two sons, looks at her daughter-in-laws, Orpha and Ruth, and says, go, leave me, go home to your family. I have nothing to give you. Orpha relents after Naomi insists. Orpha leaves, she goes home, but Ruth says, This daughter-in-law, Ruth, she says, I'm going with you. Your land will be my land. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. The scene closes with Naomi and Ruth headed back to Bethlehem. And people that have not seen Naomi in 10 years are celebrating her coming back. And she says, don't call me Naomi. Last time you saw me, I left and I left here full. And I've come back and the Lord has brought me back empty. Call me Mara. Mara meant bitterness in the Hebrew language. And so she says the God, the God of of Bethlehem has dealt bitterly with me. The scene closes and it ends with a scene of depression, of bitterness. It seems as if the tears have overcome Naomi's story. The scene closes and then the curtains open in Ruth chapter 2. It just so happened that God instituted a, a law that seems so insignificant here, but it's going to become providential for Naomi and Ruth. If you're a foreigner, if you're destitute, if you're a widow, there were laws that were called the gleaning laws. So a destitute widow immigrant could go on to an Israelite's land and glean off the edges of the property to be provided for. And so it just so happens that Ruth goes out, and it just so happens that she falls on the ground of a guy by the name of Boaz. Just so happens that Boaz was a righteous man. Just so happens that Boaz was there that day. Just so happens that Boaz and and Ruth, they catch one another's eyes. It just so happens that they meet together and Boaz blesses her and says, may you come under the wings of the Lord most high. May he provide for you. It just so happens that Ruth goes back to Naomi and says, look at all of this food that I was able to get. God has shown his blessing to us, Naomi says to Ruth, because guess what? Boaz is related to my late husband. Now, Ruth doesn't know anything about that. 
But God instituted a law that was called the law of the kinsman redeemer. So if there is a family member who dies and they have not had children, there's no children in that family line, the closest relative would redeem the land and redeem the property and would continue the line. So Naomi is seeing God's providential connection of the dots here and saying, that man that you just happened on, he's actually related to us. So as the scene of Ruth chapter 2 closes, we move to a, a starry night. In Ruth chapter 3, where Naomi says, you need to go to Boaz at the threshing floor you need to tell him of your intentions, that no longer are you in the season of mourning, but, but you're open to marriage. Now, he's a much older man than you are, Ruth, but your kindness will maybe, maybe, maybe just the Lord would use your kindness for him to be re- uh, receptive to, and maybe he would redeem you. And it just so happens that that's exactly what happens. And Boaz is overwhelmed with the kindness of Ruth. And he says, yes, I will be your kinsman redeemer, but no. There are no buts in this romance story. We need to go right to the wedding altar. We need to hear the wedding music, but we don't because Boaz is a righteous man. And he says to Ruth, there is yet a closer relative to your late father-in-law. And I need to go to him and tell him that he could redeem you and that he could redeem the land. So the story of Ruth chapter 3 comes to a conclusion and we're left with a cliffhanger. What is going to happen? Will Ruth and Boaz, will they be married or will this no-name kinsman redeemer, will he come in and and, 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 and one fatal swoop uh, dissolve all that we, we long for and all that we hope for in this romance story of God's providential dealing. And we pick up the story in Ruth chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and he sat down, and he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. And he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Bide in the presence of those sitting here, and in the presence of the elders of my people, and if you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it. And guess what? I come after you. And he said, There's no name, Joe Schmo. He says, I'll redeem it. That's not what he's supposed to say. This is messing up the whole story. But Boaz, wisely, he's got, he's got the fell safe in his back pocket here. Verse 5, then Boaz said, The day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, oh, No, 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 okay, okay, hold on. I cannot redeem it for myself lest I impair my own inheritance, take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. That's more like it. That's what we were hoping for here. So here's the first scene. Boaz comes to the city gate. City gates where public business would occur. It's sort of the courthouse of that ancient Near Eastern day. And it just so happens. You see just the coincidental providence of God. It just so happens that this guy shows up at the city gate at that time. In the, in the original Hebrew language, this is an interesting tidbit here. The Hebrew language name 
names this guy two nonsensical rhyming Hebrew words. So the equivalent of it is Mr. No Name. Actually, Mr. Joe Schmo. I mean, it just, it's just in this nonsensical way that the narrator, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells us who this guy is. Now, there's a parcel of land. This is a new detail to us. We didn't hear about this in Ruth chapter 3. There's much in God's Word that we know, but there's much of the details that we don't always know because He sees fit not to share it with us. So this little new detail here is a new detail that we don't know all the answers to. Most likely, what happened here and what's going on in Ruth chapter 4 is that Naomi and Elimelech, they owned land long before the famine here. And when they leave to go to Moab, someone begins to work that land, live on that land. And so when Naomi comes back, she just can't take over that land because Elimelech is dead. So she needs someone, a kinsman redeemer, to be able to come in for her to be able to get the land back and to sell it because they're destitute. So this is the inner workings of this courthouse scene there at the city gate. And it's in this moment that the man says, well, yeah, yeah, hey, look, I don't have any problem doing that. I'll be the kinsman redeemer. And so Boaz says, well, uh, here's, here's a catch. If you redeem the land, you also have to redeem Ruth. And notice what he pulls out of his back pocket. The Moabite, again, I've told you throughout this entire scene, her foreign nature, her immigrant status is, is at the forefront of the entire story, the prejudice that the Israelites have. So it very well may be that this potential kinsman redeemer, this Joe Schmo, he says, no, 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 no. Or it could be that he says no, not because he's prejudiced against the Moabite woman, but he, is, he has a family. He has children himself. So he knows that in this moment he, he can't conceive a child with Ruth, so he backs away and the story ends like we want it to end. Ruth and Boaz, through the providential guiding of the Lord, are brought together. And we hear the wedding music. We cue the, 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 the bird seed that's being thrown at them as they leave the, the altar and they leave the church here. And we read in verse 13, So Boaz took Ruth and became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to... And notice what they say. They don't say, Ruth, a son has been born to Naomi. You see, again, the whole story is named after Ruth here, but the story is how God is bringing about a redemption in Naomi's life here. So the narrator, he quickly speeds up the story starting in verse 13. We have a wedding, and then we have her giving birth to a son here. It's the second time in the story where the Lord's intervention is mentioned directly. Do you remember the first time it was mentioned? Chapter 1, verse 6 where God in that moment is said that he comes to the aid of his people in Bethlehem and he provides food for them. He ends the famine. So now, ending the famine, uh, the famine he comes back in chapter 4 and he books in uh, his direct intervention by opening the womb of Ruth. For 10 years, she's childless. 
we, we, we miss. Many of you might know that pain. And, and you, you feel this passage in a way that others don't feel this. But especially in this ancient Near Eastern world, to not have a child was a curse upon you. And so God opening her womb is able in this way to, to show his providential hand from, from ending the, the desertion of food in chapter 1 and now bringing about the child to be born. So in my imagination, the curtains close here. And it's almost as if they open back up for each of the main characters to, to take a step out and take a bow before us. We've seen them for four chapters. We've seen them develop. We've seen the arc of their character development from the very beginning to the end. And each one of them, the spotlight shines upon And for each one of their characters, we learn a story of who God is and how he works in our life, in our story. The first character is Ruth. She comes before us. She takes a bow. How we've seen her. This Moabite woman who, who says, I, I come under the very wings of God himself here. How we see that the Lord has orchestrated her being a follower of Jehovah, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. How she was barren for 10 years. And now she is in this moment caring for her child. We can see how the Lord guided every element of her story. And I think Ruth reminds us of a truth that God rewards those who faithfully seek him. The ladies of the town, they tell Naomi this in verse 15. They say, hey, your daughter-in-law, she's better. She is better than seven sons, they tell Naomi. Naomi stood, had her daughter-in-law stand by her from the beginning. And now God is rewarding her faithfulness as she is married to Boaz and she is having a child. She is gone. She has gone, church, from mourning to marriage, from sorrow to joy. From barrenness to fertility, this woman has, has, has come to this place where God has guided her to this moment of reward. Now, I think it's helpful for us to understand that God does reward those who faithfully seek him. But we don't always see those rewards in our earthly life. I think it's helpful to be reminded that the, the, the story of Ruth doesn't promise a, a godly husband for every widow. The story of Ruth doesn't promise a, a burping baby for every couple struggling to get pregnant. But the story of Ruth is a story that reminds us of the truth of Scripture that the best is yet to come. That the story of, 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 of loss in chapter 1 is not the end of Ruth's story. Bearing a husband, being an immigrant, being outside of God's covenantal family, it's not the end of the story. There's a chapter 4 for Ruth's development, and it is true for you, it's true for me. We see this in Scripture. We see the, the heartache of Job ending with the celebration of his family in the end. We see it in the story of Ruth. We see it in the very crucifixion of Jesus, the darkness of Friday that is replaced by the, the exultation and celebration of the resurrection of Jesus on Sunday. We see it in the very framework of Scripture itself. Creation is good. The fall horrendous and affects every one of us, but there is a rescuer who comes to restore a right relationship through Jesus. And ultimately, we know that the final chapter ahead of us is a story of restoration. 
The final chapter is the chapter where we're reminded that the best is yet to come. Now, what does that look like for you? Well, it means the forgiveness of your sins. He rewards you as you seek Jesus as your Savior, and you receive the forgiveness of sins. He rewards you as as you receive the promise of an eternity with Him where there are no more tears, no more pain, no more suffering, no more heartache, no more depression, no more pettiness of life and doctor's visits where you're having to wonder, do I go here, do I go there? What's the clarity of the diagnosis? There's no more sleepless nights wondering if the prodigal returns home. No more pride, jealousy, fighting, defending of one's reputation, disunity. None of that any longer. Because why? The best is yet to come. But that's not just in the great by and by. That's not just in heaven far away. But it is right now, as you, a follower of Jesus, hold on to his promises of his presence with you, his peace in you, his guidance before you, his strength around you. The best, my friend, is yet to come. It's not in the past. See, there's a temptation, and it's a unique temptation to our age, I think, to, to feel as if the best is behind us. You can read a zillion think pieces about how the, the millennials or the first generation potentially did not achieve the standard of living of their, of their parents' generation. I mean, we have this upward and upward mobility of the American story for generation to generation, first college grad. Move out of the city. And you can, you can read through the generations of our history, and so people are wondering, will this be the first generation that as a whole don't, don't achieve the same standard of living as their, as their parents have. And there's sort of this internal angst that our country is feeling. Ross Douthat, who is a conservative columnist for the New York Times, a, a believer, has written a book called The Decadent Society. It's a helpful book. And he, and he talks about one of the ways that, that we, we sort of look back to the past as the glory days of innovation, the glory days of exploration in the 60s, you go to the moon. And you think, what is it going to be like in the year 2000? Are we, are we going to be orbiting Mars in 2000? You, 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 go, you look at Back to the Future and you see how Marty McFly and Back to the Future Part 2 thought that the year 2016 was going to look, or maybe I think it was 2015. It looked like there's going to be flying cars. And, and now all the innovation that was promised, it, it, can, it can allow you to, to endlessly stream the crown on your telephone. And there's this sense of like disappointment and smallness in innovation that, that, is, that is around us. And so many people are, are saying, is the best behind us? Or are we, are we yet just repeating the, the best of trends in the past? I have, I have no idea. I have no idea. I have no idea about the economic future of our country. I have no idea about technological advances of the future. I have no idea, but this I do know. The best follower of Jesus is before you. The best is never in your rearview mirror. The best is always before you. The best is before us in the new heaven and the new earth. The best is before us in a relationship with him. And Ruth reminds us of that. Ruth bowels. Naomi comes to the forefront 
The light shines upon her, and we're reminded with Naomi that bitterness doesn't always have to have the last word in the life of a believer. In chapter 1, she comes back to Bethlehem, and you know what she says? She says, don't call me Naomi. No, don't call me Naomi. Don't even use that word. Don't even use that name. Call me Mara, because bitterness has encapsulated all of my life. The story of Naomi is the story of how God has proven her wrong. As God has shown her through his faithfulness that bitterness does not have to have the last word. You know, life at times can have a Naomi-like quality to it. Your life, my life, not always, but it can have some twists and it can have some turns. It can have some obstacles that feel insurmountable. The chill of tragedy and the brisk wind of bitterness, it can haunt your life as it haunted Naomi's life. That, that, can, that can be true. But Naomi, uh, her story reminds us is that where we are now isn't follower of Jesus where you will be forever. And for every believer, the ink of God's pen never runs dry in the writing of your story. Your best is before you. Bitterness doesn't get the last word. Uh, You know, many of you do Johnny Erickson taught a story at the age of 17, 1967. She had a diving accident. She's paralyzed from the neck down. There in the hospital, she feels as if her best is behind her at the cusp of her life as a young woman in this this debilitating accident. God uniquely to give her talents that she never knew she had, this artistic precision. If you've ever seen her, she paints with a brush in her mouth, and she began to have this attraction of followers that would see the artistic beauty of the rendering that she did. And many of you that have followed her life as she's a follower of Jesus, she's written 30 books, has a worldwide ministry. And as she was 17 years old in 1967, there in the hospital, paralyzed from the neck down, it was in that moment that she felt that life had passed her by. Boy, did she not know that the best was before her, a best that she would never write in her own way, but her life did not stop there in that hospital room. And you know, our life doesn't stop in those worst moments of our life either. Bitterness does not have to have the last word for you, nor does it for me. Naomi takes a bow, reminding us of that. Ruth takes a bow. The next person that comes to the center of the stage is Boaz, a stalwart, righteous man. The the lights shine upon him. And we see a man of faithfulness. We see a man of righteousness. We see a man who who desired to be used by the Lord. But there's more to Boaz. Have you you ever been in this place where you're watching a movie? You're at a football game. You're watching the band. Somebody catches your eye and you say, I mean, she reminds me of somebody I know. He, he looks just like somebody. All of us have sort of doppelgangers that we, we look like. And, and the whole time you're watching Boaz and Ruth 1 and Ruth 2 and Ruth 3 and Ruth 4, some of you here are saying, you know something? He looks like somebody else I know. Who does he look like? Boaz. As the light shine upon him at the end of the story, Boaz reminds us of a greater kinsman redeemer. 
You see, all of us are outsiders. All of us are outsiders to the covenant of the family of God. None of us here have a right upon God's mercy or God's forgiveness. But guess what? God took the initiative and he provided a way for us as sinners to enter into the family of God through faith in the great, perfect, kinsman, redeemer, Jesus Christ. Boaz paid a price of redemption. He had had to redeem that land, redeem Ruth. But Christ, he paid the perfect price of redemption, the ultimate sacrifice, which, which was no less than all of him, his entire life. Boaz, as he bows before us at the end of the story, he is sort of the whole time saying, look not to me, but look ahead. The best is yet to come. And his name is Jesus. Now, we want to give a standing ovation. We want to feel as if this story is over. But there's yet, there's yet one more character that I want you to see. The, the spotlight's hard to pick up the character because th- this character in God's word here can't even bow before us here. We're just introduced to him in the very last scene of Ruth chapter 4. But it's a character I want us to peer at here because this final character is this baby that is born. Yes, this baby shows us hope, new life, but much more. You know when you're watching a movie, and one technique that directors will use is especially small, local, kind of small setting kind of story. At times the director will will take the camera and will begin to pan out above that little house and then above the city and then it gets further out and you see the contours of that region and that state and then the United States and it goes further out and further out and then you're seeing the earth and and one of the ways that the director is saying is that in this small story it was a part of something much larger. Now if we're writing the story of Ruth we end it with the wedding scene. We end it with them kissing and we want to say and Boaz and Ruth they lived happily ever after. But Ruth chapter 4, it ends with, with a genealogy of all things, a listing of people's names, There's sort of an anticlimactic conclusion to the story, unless that story through this genealogy is panning out to something far greater. Uh, read with me in verse 18. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. And Ram fathered Aminadab. And Aminadab fathered Nashon. And Nashon fathered Salmon. And Salmon fathered Boaz. We got to our story. And Boaz fathered Obed. What's the big deal? Well, he fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Okay. So this small story in this out-of-place, out-of-the-way place in Bethlehem with sort of no-name characters. Boaz isn't a great king. He's not a great warrior. But this whole story you're telling me is the way for us to get to King David? This is what we've been reading the whole time? Yes, God tells us, Obed, he reminds us of God's providential hand in all places and at all times. It's easy to forget, but the book that precedes the book of Ruth is Judges. The last verse of Judges says, and all the people, they did what was right in their own eyes. It was one of the lowest places of Israel's history. It was a place of civil war, disunity. It was a place of moral relativism. And then what we discover in this small story 
filled with gleaning, death, famine, that God the whole time is getting us to King David. Now, we know that King David is the man after God's own heart. We know he's not a perfect man. We know he's this great leader for the Israelites and brings hope and the slaying of Goliath and all of his, all of his rule. Yes, but, but there's something even far greater than that about this story. You open up the first book of the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 1, it starts with the genealogy. And then you're walking through all of these names. And you get to verse 5, where it says, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Jesus is here because of Ruth the Moabite. So the whole story gets us to Jesus. I think it's just a great reminder that even in the midst of what seems to be small, insignificant events, a believer in Jesus Christ can know that even in the midst of those insignificant, quote-unquote, events of life, gleaning and marriage, seemingly insignificant people, that God is orchestrating his divine plan. That was true in the story of Ruth. And guess what? It is true in your story also. You know, at times, we don't understand the what's and the why's. We, We don't understand why this happened, what is happening, what is before us. But Ruth reminds us that we can trust Who is guiding your life? We can trust that the one who wrote the script of the story of Ruth is still in the business of writing your script and my script. We can trust that no matter where we've been, no matter where we are, if you are a follower of Jesus, take heart. The best is yet to come. Let us pray. It is God that we need to be reminded. We need to be reminded of this truth that the best is not behind us. It is not right now, but it is before us. Lord, we thank you for your providential hand orchestrating the events of this story in these four quick chapters in the story of Ruth. We thank you that you have provided for us the perfect kinsman redeemer that gives us hope even today for the forgiveness of our sins. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.